Italian Wine Podcast. Chin Chin with Italian Wine People. Hello, this is the Italian Wine Podcast. My name is Monty Ward and my guest today is the one and only Joe Bastianic. Joe, thank you very much for coming in. All right, Monty, good. You're a busy guy, I know. Um, family background, let's start with that. So my family are Italian immigrants that left uh, Italy after the war, World War II, and came to New York. Um, they came from an agricultural background from an area called Istria, which is a very particular area because uh, it was Italy and then became Yugoslavia and now is currently Croatia. So the Istrian people, uh, ethnic Italian Istrians are a population in the world without a home. And it's a very, very particular culture, but that's kind of what brought my family to food. They came as winemakers and food people to America. So obviously, as immigrants do, the first jobs they got were working in restaurants. My dad was a waiter. My mom worked in a bakery, and then they met. And uh, as immigrants do, they opened up their first restaurant in 1968, the year I was born, in Queens, New York, which is, uh, is a suburb of the city. Not a suburb, it's one of the boroughs. And uh, it all started there for me. I was born in a restaurant. I grew up in a restaurant and, uh, you know, fell in love with, uh, with food and wine, but in, in the most roundabout way, you know, because as, as immigrants, we were very modest means and we appreciated everything that life brought us. And uh, the journey's been long, but uh, food and wine have always been a central part of it. It's interesting you talk about the economic side. I mean, the people I've spoken to is one of your big things is that you provide high quality food in your restaurants, but you're not asking the earth in terms of price. You're, you're trying to get really sensible pricing. Yeah, true? well, I think that's part of the way that I was brought up. I have a, I feel a very big responsibility towards my customers. And I think just even in these days, just selling things for as much money as possible is not always the right thing. And I think that people at the end of the day want value or you know want real value for what they eat and drink and that's kind of been my um, my mo since the beginning and i and i stick with it i think that value is something that'll never go out of style and uh, both in wine i mean we were kind of revolutionary in the wine world uh, when i opened my first restaurant in 1991 it was called becco in the theater district of manhattan we opened up with an uh, all italian wine list which was unheard of in new york in the late 80s and 90s and every bottle was 15 dollars a bottle cost to the customers. So it was like right off the bat, it was a different times, obviously, where you can sell a bottle of wine in a restaurant for 15 bucks, but that was how it all began. And then I've always tried to bring the value equation in the wine world, trying to get people to drink better and more. So it wasn't just about food for you. You're a, a real passionate musician as well. How does the music the fit music, into your life? The music, it's such a part of your life. More and more, more and more so. It was kind of like a hidden, dirty secret. And then I became, I started doing TV 12 years ago. I became lucky enough to be able to have a public. And now I kind of use that privilege to put forth my music. It's, uh, it's a unique privilege. Not many people have it. And um, I enjoy, I write songs. I write I write music. Um, I did a, uh, a run in a theater in Milan called Vino Veritas last year. We did a four-month run at the Franco Parenti Theater in Milan. So what was that? Was that a musical, a wine musical? So it's a wine musical, basically. So, uh, you know, a classical theater, people come in, everyone gets a glass. There's five wines tasted. They start off with little bubbles, and they sit down. There's sommeliers who work the room. But then the show happens on stage simultaneously, and it's never like, there's never a reference to the wine. Like, you know you're there. It's called Vino Veritas. The stories are about my life, my life in food, my life in wine. The songs are about my life, but people get to taste my wines. I always say, like, my wines are very, very personal, and I think when you drink a glass of my wine, it's like getting to know me a little bit. Okay, so in terms of rock influences... Oh, we're going to go there? Yeah, uh, we don't have so to. So I'm a, probably a little bit older than you, so I'm, I grew up uh, with classic album rock of the 70s. I'm 50. Oh, fuck, we're the same age. <laughs> 
I hear all of them because I'm only 49. Oh, okay. <laughs> I grew up with uh, with classic rock. You know, I grew up, uh, started a bit on the Beatles and then fell into Kiss. And then from there, when I really started, then I heard this guy play guitar named Jimmy Page. And then the whole world changed for a young 11-year-old Joe because the power of Led Zeppelin was all about masculinity and sex and rock and roll and I thought it was the greatest thing in the world and uh, all I wanted to do was listen to Led Zeppelin and then from Led Zeppelin I became more of a connoisseur and my I also played guitar and um, my uh, taste expanded in the early 80s got into a little bit of fusion and jazz and and started listening to things like uh, Weather Report and Jaco Pastorius and uh, in New York at that time also we had a lot of live music so as kids in New York we went out and listened to live music three nights a week you know even as like 13 year old kids we'd take the subway in and go go to the Peppermint Lounge go to CBGB's go to the Mud Club you know in those days see bands like The Clash see The Smiths you know we were also that whole new wave thing is something that I lived very much in the 80s um, so basically you strike me if uh, you know if I was your dad uh, or your mum, sorry, your parents. You were a kid that was out and about but not getting into trouble. No, no, we were ju- we were just too smart to get into trouble. But how, so, what do you mean by that? So, I mean, we did what, what kids did, but we were like, you know, it was a different time. In the, in the 70s and, and the early 80s, it was even the drugs and the booze and what happened was, was moderated by a humility. So it's not like now you go out and you buy a bag of weed and it's like a rocket ship to the mood. We used to smoke like Mexican shake, you know? You can smoke a joint and you feel okay. Okay, but it wasn't like blow your head off. Yeah. It was all a little bit more simple, moderate, and uh, kinder. You know what? That may be a factor of age. Because if I smoke a joint in those days, I could get nicely stoned. If I smoke a joint now after three puffs, I'm like, whoa. Yeah. You know? Well, it's also the pot now is yeah. so much stronger. Well, was what was Queens like as a neighborhood? Is it, was it a rough area? Was it, it a was, nice area? It was super ethnic. Uh, we grew up in a very uh, Italian and Irish neighborhood. And then we moved to the Jewish neighborhood. And then that's when I realized, like, so we grew up in Astoria, which is super hardcore, blue collar working class Italian and Irish but with good values right super good values it was all about food and it was about families and it was about people and, and it was respect about, for yeah. the community but but it was also respect for other cultures like one of the main things that we knew or sometimes that it's that I always realized that not many people had was like I was Italian. The first thing I knew about you was whether you were Jewish or, or, or Greek or Irish, and that made a difference, you know what I mean, like where you come from. And um, and then we moved to Bayside, Queens, which was a more affluent neighborhood. After they opened the restaurant, they had a little success. We moved out of an apartment, we bought a house in Bayside, Queens, and that's where I met people who had pools and who went to yacht clubs and drove Mercedes-Benz, I was like, ah, this is like the other half lives. So I realized that uh, life wasn't all about a one-bedroom railroad on Steinway Street in Queens. And, um, you know, you didn't feel underprivileged. It's not like you saw, you know, as you say, the other side of life. It's not like you you lacked anything. It seems like, you you know, you were well fed. You had clothes. You had your friends. You you stayed out of trouble. You didn't take the wrong track. No, yeah. Trouble was always around. And I think that because of, you know, coming back to Italy and because of the family values we had and how food was central and how my grandmother lived with us you know there was always that element of home that was as important as everything else and I saw a lot of kids especially in the music world you know I played in a band you saw the kids that got into the heavier drugs and took the wrong turn and I think that certainly having a strong uh, Italian family value was something that kept me on the straight and narrow through those years when anyone could have easily made a mistake sure so you're a pretty good kid right I was a good kid yeah, 
I'm trying to make up for that now, but I was maybe even too good. One of the things we see, obviously, you do a lot of TV and, uh, you know, a thing called MasterChef, which is a kind of a talent show where contestants compete against each other and individually. You seem to be someone, the only time you really get annoyed is when people, it's not because they cooked a bad dish or they got it wrong or whatever, it's when people don't give 100%. It's so clear that you really feel that people should make the most of their potential. Well, I, you know, as much as you think it's a TV show, it's also like a real four months of my life where I'm in like a, an industrial hang on the outskirts of Milan in a real shit area, drinking bad coffee, getting up at 7 in the morning, spending 18 hours a day with a fat Neapolitan and a short guy from Bologna. <laughs> those are, those <laughs> are the fellow chefs. And, uh, and, and yeah, you know, like you get to know these contestants, you give them direction, you give them feedback, and they continue to make the same mistakes or they don't put in the effort or they don't listen or they, they think they're going to outsmart you. And that gets annoying. So it is a bit of a microcosm, that world of, of MasterChef in the kitchen. And those interactions... As much as you may think they even could be staged, they're not. They're very real because you, um, it's almost like kind of sensory deprivation. We take these contestants and we pull them out of the world. We take their telephones away. They stay in a hotel next door to the studio. Really? They don't have a yeah. phone? No. Nope. Right. They can use their phones at certain times, but technically they're not supposed to have a phone because they're not supposed to have access to the internet. Right. They're all, you know, signed, legally signed to secrecy. And we keep them in there. And when they're not on camera, they're cooking and taking cooking lessons and living together. And, um, and that kind of, uh, the deprivation deprivation of, of their real lives makes them very vulnerable and very, very open to direction. And some people use that stimulus to really kind of excel and win, and other people it doesn't work. So, And a lot of the frustration in the show is that the, re the rapport between us and the cooks is real. The rapport, you mean? The, the camaraderie between the presenters, you and no, your fellow? No, fetish. no, the, the Actually, also, the, the, I mean, we start with a lot, but once we start getting halfway through the season where there's 20 cooks and you know them for two months, the, the, the relationship between the judges and the contestants is also real. And it becomes, you know, friends, mentors, emotional. And I think that creates a lot of the drama because it's, you couldn't fake it, right? Yeah. That's the thing. So it has to be real. Yeah, so when you have to send someone home, it's, it's kind of sad and a relief sad, in some ways. Yeah. Yeah. Well, no, it's usually sad. And sometimes, you know, someone pisses you off. You throw them out and you're, you feel they deserved it, but it's, um, you know, it's a real thing. Okay. So food and wine pairing, how anal are you about that? Do you just open a bottle of wine and, uh, and have yeah. a bite to eat or do you really try and match stuff up? No, I think that I have gone through an evolution of that in my life. And I think the whole world is, is too, too. Like when I started, it was about pairing wines that, you know, seemed to complement food and something that would really kind of be really thought about a dish and the wine that would go with it. And then it's kind of like, it's kind of like music for me. You, you go through different phases and different tastes in your life. So then it was like contrasting flavors. Then I really kind of stopped eating at restaurants, you know, like I'm, I've eaten everything in my life already. I'm done. Like I'm all about like a plate of spaghetti, you know what I mean? Or a pizza, or I'm like about eating products. So contrast, compliment, what makes you smile? What are you in the mood for? You know, obviously tomato sauces need certain kinds of red wines and different kind of white wines go well in those situations. I drink white wine every day as an aperitivo, as a beverage. I drink red wine mostly at the table. I never drink sweet wine, and I like champagne whenever anyone was willing to open a really good bottle. Cool, okay. Let's talk about your creative side. How has that changed over time, either with food or with wine? Like when you create your wines, you've got a couple of wineries. Yeah, um, so, so creativity um, is something that I think that grows on you in life. I've been fortunate enough to have uh, different outputs to do it, whether it is in wine or in food or creating restaurants. You know, I think that at first, the first years of my professional life, a lot of my creativity went into trying to recreate the food experience. And that's a very powerful thing, like when you can create an environment and how people interact with food and drink and you can affect it or change it or do things that change the world in wine, and I've done that, that's big. Is that about the ambience 
Or is it about the, the about atmosphere, like, or is it phys- about It's about, pairing? like, physical, physical things. Like, when we opened Babo in 1998, I had this idea. We were buying wine in large formats because the wine market was upside down. The distributors had all these three liters, great wines. They didn't know what to do with them. I was buying closeouts of giant bottles. Like, how am I going to sell this stuff? So we basically started the idea of the Quartino, you know? Explain. A third, a Quartino is un cuarto, cuarto de un litro, a a quarter of a liter. A 25 CL? Yeah. So the concept was all the pomp and circumstance of wine by the bottle in the context of wine by the glass. It's a glass, it's poured from the bottle at the table into a small decanter, then you can kind of fill your own glass to as much as you feel comfortable. And we were really the first to do that. Yeah. And that is a way that wine is served almost everywhere in America now. Okay. So that's like a real thing. But that was almost, you'd sort of see that in like the old timers in Italy, they'd have those what, kind of yeah. beakers almost on the table, they're yeah, playing my, cards or whatever. Well, that's exactly where my, my, my family's from. We come from a great osteria culture. My great grandfather was a drunk, the town drunk, and they called him Quartich. Because he would just go to the Osteria and have one quarto after the other, and uh, that was his nickname. Really? True story, yeah. Did he live for, to, to a ripe old age? I think he lived into his 90s, yeah. Yeah, well, there I, you I go. say drunk. I don't think he was a drunk. He was a guy who probably drank two liters of wine a day. Right, kids but don't he, go, he, copy he, that at home. Yeah. He probably worked really, you know, he worked in the fields and he could metabolize it. And yeah, it's fuel, isn't it? Yeah, they were drinking Top. different kind of wines yeah. back then, but two liters seems like a lot. But so that's what I associate with you. You're not someone that has any airs and graces. You know your origins and you've got a lot of respect for that kind of, like the old timers, basically, the old timer Italian, Italians. Yeah, I think there's so much to learn from how they handled life. You know, I wrote a book called Restaurant Man. I don't have it, I'll send it to you. I learned so much from my father, you know, guys who are immigrants, you know, guys like my father, in, even in his own simplicity, and he was a guy that the times left behind a little bit in the older parts of life, but he was a guy who saw hunger in his life, you know, in the war, didn't have enough to eat, came to America, opened a restaurant, made a living, bought a house, right? And I think that the kind of like the nuts and bolts values that those kind of people have about the value, he quantified his success in America by the kind of food he could put on the table. Right. You know, if he could open a bottle of champagne or have good wine or some cat caviar, smokes. He liked, he, for him, that was success. Eating well, having friends to the house, music. He played the accordion. He was actually almost a semi-professional accordion player. So singing and eating and drinking, working hard to make a living. Super straightforward, super simple, but really values that can can be driving and determining in someone's life. Yeah, so you, you have a lot of those, don't you? you kind of I, think just try to, I just try to keep it no bullshit, like keep it really straight. And, and, you, and your and kids, are you quite strong with them? Yeah, they I try, good kids? my kids are good. I think that they they certainly have had a very different experience than I've had, and they've grown up in New York City and, and, and certainly in a much more privileged uh, situation. And, you know, it's funny because the winery... I started Bastianich in 1997 was the year my daughter was born. And really, as much as I loved wine, and making wine was my dream. And this is in Friuli, this one. The winery is in Friuli, Venezia Giulia, and Colle Orientale. You know, I came here as a kid, toured around in the uh, in the late 80s in, the, in, a, in a VW minivan and lived like a hippie for a year and a half. I went from Pantelleria to, uh, to Alto Adige making wine, working in restaurants. And that's kind of really where I fell in love with the wine thing, like the making of wine, the agriculture. And uh, you could imagine in 1989, the Italian wine world was a very different place than it is now. But one thing that the Italians do do is bring people into their world. And the wine, the Italian wine community brought me into their world. And 
they kind of influenced me and they taught me and I had great, great teachers like people like uh, Luciano Sandrone, Marco De Bartoli, you know, just to name a few who were really kind of mentors to me as a young kid. And um, and that's when I figured out that I had to do the wine thing. So my first plan didn't work out. I was going to find an Italian contessa, like a, like a you know, a noble oh, to marry. Yeah, to marry. Into, no, because I thought I would just marry you. It would be easier. Yeah. No, that's sort of, that was really? my plan one, but it didn't work. Did you have a crack at any? Yeah, one, any one, I can't mention it, but yeah. one German. I almost got it. Not far from where you live, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you later. Off, okay. off, off, off tape. Um, so, uh, so I went back to New York in 1991, and I did the only thing that I knew how to do was open a restaurant. So I opened my restaurant. And that was Becco. And then um, that did well. And then I opened another restaurant. And then I was able in 1996 to go back. And I bought nine hectares of vineyards. I had an idea of what wine I wanted to make. I went back to kind of near, not Istria, because Istria was then even Yugoslavia. Mm-hmm. I couldn't go there. But we went outside of Trieste to uh, Colle Oriental in Friuli near Cividale. And I bought uh, eight hectares at first. And I started making uh, my wine, Vespa Bianco. In 1998 was the first vintage. So just up to 20 vintages now. And that was my dream. So that brings me back to the thing. Why? I mean, aside from loving wine, I really had to find a way to have my kids be um, tied into this Italian reality in a real way, like I was fortunate to have through my family. And they did. They grew up in the winery. They grew up among people who lived there and a woman, Gianna, the seven-year-old woman who runs the winery, who taught all my kids Italian and took care of them like she was their grandmother. And they worked with farmers. And they had a whole existence of agriculture, of living in Italy, with in Friuli is also a place of hardworking, simple people. Yeah, this wasn't a winery with red carpets running it was. It was hardly that. So they saw the growth of it, and you know, in time, we opened a restaurant, opened a small hotel and B and B, and it's really part of their home. And although now, as teenagers, they're all, you know, two of them are in college, they're moving away from it a little bit. I think hopefully one day they'll come back to Italy as a place where they have fond memories and maybe come back to even make it a part of their lives. Okay. I mean, when you visit other wineries, that ones that you don't own. Um, do you do you offer an opinion, or do you wait till you're asked? You know, Mr. Bastianich, what did you think of our red wine? Well, I would I would always I would never offer an opinion unless I was asked. And usually, if you ask me, I'll tell you the truth, for good or for bad. And I do feel qualified to do that because I you know I think that I've tasted a lot, I know that I've tasted a lot of wine in my life, and um, I'm fortunate enough to have a really good reference point on wines in general. And I'm not afraid to give an opinion. How do you stand with the whole natural wine thing? So. I believe in making wines naturally, and I think I'm a certainly non-interventionist winemaker. As a person, I think our roles in, in the winemaking worlds is to be guardians of, of processes that are very natural, like photosynthesis or alcoholic fermentation. These are things that happen without any great intervention by man. And the grape will struggle for life to procreate itself. The, the vine, the grape is the fruit of the vine. It's, 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 it's looking for a future. It'll struggle with the other vines in the vineyard and give the most of the vigor it can to its grape cluster. The, the sugar in those grape clusters, when they're mature, will be uh, infested by yeast, and the yeast will turn that sugar into alcohol, and the rest is, is history, right? So as far as, uh, as natural wine is not interfering with wine, and I think that our role as winemakers is also to have the wines have to speak of the varietal and their terroir, their place of origin. If wine doesn't do that, then it's really doing nothing. So I'm much, I'm very much about wines that are expressive of place, of varietal, that have a story. Living and working in New York and California, Los Angeles, I think in the last maybe 10 years, we've seen 
um, extreme wines, orange wines, biodynamic wines, whatever you want to call them, that have become more of a, of a tool of marketing and um, just something for these sommeliers to talk about to justify their existences. And I think that that's, um, that's a mistake. Yeah, if you had, so if you had the choice, say, right, we're going to go out for an evening, and I'm going to invite you out for an evening on me, and uh, I say, right, I'm going to hook you up with um, six sommeliers or six chefs, which which would you prefer? You can't have three and three. Neither. Really? Three butchers and three fishermen. Really? Yeah. Why? Because they're craftsmen. They're dealing with the raw product? Yeah, it's also just a thing of maturity. I think that, you know, the, I always say the tyranny of the sommelier has to end soon. So, and even though I, I come from that elk, and that's how I was born and raised, and, and to a large extent, not to blow sunshine up my ass, but we did create the, the, the culture of wine professionals in restaurants 30 years ago. We were the first to do it. We were the first, you know, to do a lot of things in the wine world. I think that to a certain extent, it's gone a little bit tipsy-turvy, or it did. Now it's maybe coming back a little bit more grounded. See, but it basically, it's basically more about the sommelier than it is about the wine. They become yeah, bigger than the wine. Exactly. So big egos. Big egos about justifying their travels, their existences, you know, bringing, just have having to having to blow people away on every turn on how smart and intelligent and insightful and keen their palates are, rather than being what they really should be, which would be someone who is assisting someone to help define the wine that they're going to like and make their dining experience more pleasurable. If you're a fantastic sommelier and you're that smart, write a book, and if I want, I'll fucking buy it and read it. If not, keep your mouth shut and help me when you're in the restaurant. <laughs> okay. So are there any food and wine matches that you really get up your nose that you really don't like, things things that don't work, or you very much kind of listen, if you like uh, it? Yeah, I'm, I'm about, I mean, I, I believe in, in there, there are absolutes, there are good wines, and there are bad wines. Like the whole concept of the best wine is the the wine you like is bullshit. You know, there's good wines and there's bad wines. I believe that if you, on the pairing of good wines with good food, hold the freedom on that. You know, whatever you, I mean, certain things are going to work better than others, but there's, uh, I think that people should be able to to do that as they like. Although there are certain absolutes that I feel, uh, at least in the Italian world, that are, that really stand true and work, you know, like Nebbiolo, Piemontese wines, Barbaresco with a, with a brisato, with mushrooms, with those kind of flavors, those earthy, woodsy flavors, or Tuscan wines, you know, like Sangiovese in its best form as Brunello or Vino Nobile, with grilled meats and that char and the red meat. Those are things that really, really work. Because you got a winery in Tuscany as well. Tell us about that. Did I go to a Tuscan? No, I you got it. I own one. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, in La Mozza in Marema. Yeah, that was um, that came uh, 15 years ago, five years after the original one. And Maurizio Castelli was um, he had bought a plot of land for his son and yeah. their family. And he's like, yeah, these fucking dudes from the, these rich noble people from the Veneto are gonna come here and break my balls. You should buy this land before they do because if I'm gonna have to kill them. So I did, <laughs> and uh, we bought like 100 hectares. We planted uh, 10 off the bat. Now we're up to like 30 hectares, and we're in uh, po- po- uh, Località Pochola mozza where we make uh, a bit of morlino and a bit of IGT. And so the morlino is the local name for the Sangiovese grape? Yep. And um, so mostly Sangiovese, but you know, with all the clones down there that they use in, in making the morlino. So morlino is a geographic designation uh, where Sangiovese and 11 other varietals that can be used in morlino. So do you take, I mean, these wines that you make in Italy, whether they're in Friuli, obviously, in or in Tuscany, I mean, do you, do you sell all of those in your via your outlets or do you, do you sell no, all sure. the same? Obviously, we saw in our restaurants in Italy, but also throughout the world. I mean, we try to, I mean, obviously having a throughput of your own restaurants is great and it's a good marketing tool for wines, but we also like, you know, have markets all over the world. 
Yeah. And how are tastes changing in terms of wine, in terms of it? Obviously, oak seems to be out. Well, if you, if you, just, if you just look at the microcosm of, of, of Barolo and Barbaresco, what's happened in the last 10 years, I think that's a good leading indicator of what's happening in the global wine world. You know, those wines, when done right, speak of the place, are pure, are powerful, are varietally driven, have a great sensibility with the local food, the people who make them smell of them, you know what I mean? It all kind of makes sense. And I think people want more and more of that. And it's funny because we're here today to talk about millennial wine consumers and understanding what these kids who are 20 to 30 year old are going to drink. And from our perception and from what studies that we, we're we learning by, by web marketing is um, they're informed, they're not a friend to spend, they want quality and they want authenticity. And they want narrative as well. They want a story behind it, don't they? But, well, they have the narrative, you know, on their, on, in their digital existence everything is either a video or a narrative so I think they kind of that they even presuppose that because anything you sell them has to either have the visual behind it or the storytelling behind it but they are they're certainly focused on quality they're consuming less but better and they want to know where their products come from and they're not willing to spend a little bit more so the signs are all good I think it's up to us producers or us older folks to really modernize how we want to communicate about wine and how we want to affront this next horizon of wine consumers, which are millennials. So final question. You know, you're a brilliant communicator, very successful self-made businessman who's got his feet on the ground. Do you have any political ambitions? And I don't mean that in a pejorative sense. I just mean, do you, would you, would, you know, you are a leader, yeah, no, a pathfinder. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I've thought about that. I, quite frankly, if I if I didn't do the whole TV thing, the politics might have been something that I, that I would have enjoyed doing. Because um, you were a banker very briefly, weren't you? Yeah, I was a banker for a while, Was that too. fun? It was, did you see Wolf of Wall Street? Nah. It was like the eight, 1990, 90, 89, 90, 91. It was like the excesses of New York and Wall Street. It was a great moment in New York, but it was a crazy moment. Were you a bit of a black sheep then? Presumably if all the bankers had made a million that day, they were sloshing crook champagne down there next, and you were probably going back to your family home and just chilling out, yeah? No, I had an apartment on the 38th floor in Battery Park City, overlooking the Statue of Liberty. So you were caning it as well, yeah? Yeah, I had a Jewish girl named, girlfriend named Robin Shalom. And uh, I would go out for every day. Go, go out for dinner like every night, and uh, it was great. It was like a, a real, real heyday in New York. Good memories, good times. So she's obviously stuck in your memory. She was. She. Was, I didn't forget her. Very nice girl. How do you stay in shape? I uh, exercise every day. I do have a lot of athletic. I do. I've done Ironman. I run marathons and try to. The only thing that keeps me on the straight and narrow is having to get up and hit that gym for a couple hours every morning. I was going to ask you that one about, about the, the, mm-hmm. the politics. So I kind of cut you off. Sure. I mean, any, any political ambitions? But not not in Italy because it's not my country and it's in just it's just so fucked here anyway. But the U.S. is hard for me because I'm living mostly in Italy, so it's right. kind of like I'd have to be there. So, um, but I wouldn't mind, and I think that there is, um, especially what's with what's happening now in the United States. There's always more and more of a need for I think people, intelligent people, who really want to do something good. To Moderate get people, just people who, yeah, who have a good sensibility because it's you know the the whole ambition of ego and power. It's just boring and it's kind of gross. And uh, I think there'll always be a space for people who want to do right by others in politics. So I I don't know. I'd love to do it, but who knows? Maybe not in this lifetime. Fair enough. Joe Bastianich, I want to thank you for coming in. Really good to talk to you. Thank you very much. It was a little bit nerve-wracking talking to somebody that you see on telly a lot. Um, That was a great interview. You're good. Thanks. My Mm -hmm. um, I told you about my kid, yeah? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He's nine. Yeah, he's a good lad, yeah. Yeah, What's his name? He's called Arthur. Arthur. Yeah, so... Um, does he speak Italian? Yeah, he does, yeah. More, does he speak English as well? Yeah, he does. What's yeah. his first language? It's a mix, actually, because he goes to school in um, in a little local school in Montalcino, which is full of good kids, and most of the, most of the parents are Bruno. So do you know the other kid? Like, who are the other uh, Brits over there? There's... Uh 
sucklings around there? Doesn't he live there? Uh, yeah, he, he's a bit further north, actually. He's up a little he's bit more towards... He's got kids who to come to Tuscany yeah. that grow up in England. And there's a couple of others. There's a lot of ex- there's a lot of you guys up there. In yeah, I mean, it, well, the Montalcino is kind of a, also the kind of Tuscan lifestyle. That's my dream. That was always my dream, Montalcino. I came, really? came close a couple of times and... Uh, or to buy vineyards. Yeah. yeah, well, my partner's a financial lawyer, so she could help. She does. She valued some wineries recently. You've got to be really careful. Yeah. Because when they value the winery, uh, what happened last time is they actually valued the stock on its retail value. So the price of the winery was X million more than it should have been so you've got to be pretty careful but it's um i'll tell you what the one thing that we lack in montalcino focus no it's uh, mm-hmm. apart from yeah okay mm-hmm. but the one thing we lack mm-hmm. actually in the town is we don't have a high-end restaurant we don't have one we right? do not have a high-end the, restaurant. there was one in the hotel something the order no What's yeah it? but it's it, it's not like really high-end uh-huh. i mean it's it's very good it's typical What's Tuscan. It well we have uh, the cucina povera we just have the which they you know you have the, the kind of bread soup and all that sort of stuff but we don't really have anybody doing um, so i had like fine real, dining i had real moments in montalcino in my epic trip there when I was a, a lad, I can just remember. <laughs> when you moments, let's just stick to the food and wine. Not, not all the girlfriends. That <laughs> not you. even girlfriends. Just I, I just remember sitting on the walls and watching the sunset. And you know, like those times when you're young and you spend a year alone, away from all your friends, and you just spend a lot of time to think. And then Montalcino was a big part of my collective memory of kind of my uh, Holden Caulfield coming to coming to fruition as a person. It was a bit of a backwater then. People, I mean, it's a very young um, superstar in the wine firm of Montalcino. It only has a 100-year history, and even in modern history, it's only like 25 years old, 30 years old. It's not like Burgundy with the Cistercians, right, you know, a 1,000 right. years ago. So it's a very young, uh, it's almost like a parvenu uh, region. I think a lot of people there are still finding their way a little bit. Yeah, the wines are a little bit all over the place. Yeah, they, they, they are. They need to, I think that they expanded it too much. I think there's a lot of Brunello that's not Brunello, in my opinion. Yeah, it was the and 97 boom yeah. where the basically the legal registry could register. And if you had a, a EU wife, like a Croatian wife, whatever, you'd get extra money because it was a woman getting involved in farming. So there were some, maybe some slightly dodgy motivations for people getting jumping yeah, on the bandwagon. And there's certain people who have not, not helped it either through certain firms, nameless, that have not helped the Montalcino yeah. clause. It's cleaned up a lot, though. Has it? Yeah, yeah, it's a lot it's better. It's a great place because when the wine's like, I'm a big fan of Poggio di Sotto or, you know, the, 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 when those wines are, even Solderas, when those wines are good and pure, Sangiovese can be so powerful, mm-hmm. so amazing. So it really is kind of Burgundy-esque in a lot of ways when it's, when it's really good. It's unforgiving, it's acid, it's a beast. And to do it right it takes a lot of finesse. And when it's great, it can really be great. Yeah, you should come down. You should, you should buy somewhere. <laughs> we'll see. Why not? I think I missed the boat on that one. No, maybe. Mm-hmm. Never know. Joe Bastian. Thanks, man. You're Appreciate a, it. You're a, you're, a, you're a superstar. Thanks Thank a lot for coming in. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's been great. Thank you. Thank you. Follow Italian Wine Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. <laughs>